Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Maranatha. Very thankful for this opportunity to preach God's word to you this morning. As we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is only in your Son that we have life. We ask that you would sanctify us in your truth. We ask that your Holy Spirit would help us now to not only be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start by saying that I love documentaries. So, Jiro Dreams of Sushi and The Last Dance are just a few of the many I've enjoyed watching. Several weeks ago, I watched Spelling the Dream, which is a 2018 documentary that focuses on the dominance of young Indian Americans in the Scripps National Spelling Bee. They are the Michael Jordans, the LeBron Jameses, and as much as I hate to say it, the Tom Brady's of the Spelling Bee world. It's amazing to see the dedication of these young competitors who endure various tests at the local, state, and national levels. Just a few fun facts. The winning word for 2018 was koinonia, the Greek word for fellowship between the body of believers. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. And I won't even attempt to read the winning words from 2019. There are eight words because there was an eight-way tie last year. And I'll be honest, I've never heard these words. Even the MacBook Pages program didn't recognize a handful of these words, 
So there's a red squiggly dotted line underneath several words for spell check. Like these spelling bee competitors, many of us have been through a variety of tests, music tests, math tests, SATs, ACTs, all the different tests that end in ATs, driver's license tests. These tests show what you know and your ability to apply your knowledge. Not only do we go through physical tests in life, but the scriptures teach us that we are also to endure spiritual trials. These spiritual tests reveal what we believe and who we are at our core. In today's passage, the lawyer stands up to test Jesus, but it is Jesus who tests the lawyer to reveal what is at the core of his heart. In the previous chapter, Luke 9:51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. We see that Jesus is approaching his final week. His arrest, his death, his resurrection are near. After the 72 disciples return from healing and proclaiming the gospel, Jesus says in Luke 10, 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This context sets up our passage. As Jesus is rejoicing, the lawyer overhears him and stands up to test him. Lawyers during Jesus' time were also known as scribes, were a group of religious leaders who studied and interpreted God's law for the people. They were the experts in Jewish law. Along with the Pharisees and Sadducees, they wanted to expose Jesus as a fraud and looked for opportunities to get rid of him. Listen to Jesus' words of condemnation against these lawyers in the next chapter. Luke eleven forty six to 47 And he said, Woe to you lawyers also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Luke eleven fifty two, Woe to you lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus curses these lawyers because of their wickedness. They were the brains behind the religious system and all its corruption. Rather than faithfully teaching the law, these lawyers were guilty of false interpretations and piling on their people the burden to follow such laws without ever lifting a finger to help them. They also approved of their ancestors' murders of the prophets who came in the Lord's name. By taking part in such wicked acts, they refused to enter into God's plan of salvation, and even worse, they kept others from truly knowing God. Now there are signs that this lawyer may not be as wicked as the rest of them. Calling Jesus teacher shows a certain level of respect. Like a student who raises his or her hand in class and calls on the teacher's name to ask a question. And this lawyer's question is a personal question. He's asking for his own sake. Yet it cannot be denied that being part of the corrupt religious system has influenced his understanding of eternal life. This test from the lawyer was an effort to confirm what he believed he already knew. It is with this attitude that the lawyer asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
This was such an important question because eternal life was equivalent to salvation. Like this lawyer, the Jewish religious leaders and people were genuine in their desire for eternal life. They clung to the Old Testament promises that God made with Abraham and David, that he would establish an eternal kingdom. Listen to this promise in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. They longed for this Messiah to come, to establish this unrivaled kingdom, and they wanted to take part in this perfect righteousness, joy, and peace. In order to inherit eternal life, there was an emphasis on what a person must do in the present life. On top of this, the Jews believed they were the chosen people, the children of Abraham. In asking this question, the lawyer had in mind standing in front of God in the future, and in that future, he looks back at his life on earth, thinking about the deeds he's done that made him worthy of eternal life. He was testing Jesus while falsely believing his eternal fate was secure. This question sets up the foundation for the rest of the passage. This conversation and the parable of the Good Samaritan hinge on this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This passage is much more than an example of how to be a Christ-like neighbor. Yes, as Christians, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, to help others with humility and compassion, and there are many passages that point to this. But the heart of this passage is about inheriting eternal life. It is about salvation. As good and important as this question was, the lawyer's understanding of how one inherits eternal life was wrong. And in verses 26 to 28, we see the first test from Jesus. Jesus responds to the lawyer's question with two questions. He asked the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The Son of God knows that the answer to the most important question can only be found in God and His Word, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And it is not surprising that the lawyer answers correctly. All Jews would recite these verses twice a day, every day. As a so-called expert, the lawyer knows that Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 are the heart of the law. Jesus himself responded to another lawyer in Matthew 22, 40, saying, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus has two purposes in drawing out this answer from the lawyer. The first is that he's revealing that love is the fulfillment of the law. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Leviticus 19.18 You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Both passages come from the Torah, the Mosaic Law, which was given to the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. God saved His people through Moses from slavery and into a covenant relationship with Him. And this law established what God required from them because they were to be holy as the Lord is holy. 
The lawyers were right in keeping these two commandments together because they were inseparable. Devotion to God is expressed in our love for our neighbors. Our love for our neighbors makes evident our devotion to God. In their devotion to the Lord and treatment of one another, these Israelites were to love. And it's not just any type of love. It's an agape love. You may know that there are several Greek words for love depending on the context, but agape love is of the highest kind. It is a love that the Lord has for His people. And we are to wholeheartedly love the Lord and our neighbors with such love. This purpose serves as a warning for us as God's people. On a personal level, how often do you seek to obey God's word and forget about the heart of the law? I need to read the Bible. I need to pray. I need to give my offering. I need to watch what I say. And the list goes on and on. But without knowing, we boil down the Christian life to a list of duties to complete. And it's scary how much one can act in seemingly Christ-like ways without any love. And when it comes to our neighbors, what compels you to act for their sake? Several weeks ago, a friend from seminary shared shared a great word of wisdom with me while we were discussing all the recent acts of injustice. In a time like this where emotions run high and there's so much division in our nation and even in the church, he encouraged me to remember that there is a spiritual warfare going on. If we are not careful and alert, Satan can get a foothold and deceive Christians to act rashly or never act because of anger, pride, guilt, shame, or fear. What may look like acts of love for our neighbors may actually be motivated by the lies of Satan. They may not be for God's glory, but for personal glory. Obedience and deeds driven by anger, pride, guilt, fear, or shame, they are not the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And more specifically, it is an agape love that is a fulfillment of the law. I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey when we don't feel like it, which is often the case for so many of us. But our obedience, our deeds, our good works should be fueled by our love for the Lord and our neighbors. Secondly, Jesus is revealing the weight and burden of keeping these commandments perfectly. The law was meant to reveal just how holy God is and just how sinful man is. When we think of the law, it is important to remember that there was a detailed sacrificial system for sin so man could remain in God's presence. But not only that, there are serious punishments and curses for not upholding the law in the Old Testament. And this remains true today. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Not only is it an agape love that fulfills the law, but the law is to be obeyed perfectly because God's standard is perfection. Even the slightest mistake in keeping the law makes one worthy of being cursed and receiving God's wrath. It's like me saying to one of the children at MKids, boys and girls, there's a new rule. If you want to keep coming out to MKids, you need to keep Uncle Ryan Prince on your back the whole time without him touching the floor. Once he touches the floor, you failed and you're never welcomed back. This would be horrible, first of all. This wouldn't be just a physical burden, 
but an emotional one as well. Just imagine one by one, each child trying to keep Ryan off the ground, only to be crushed and demoralized. For those of you who don't know Ryan, he's the guy who's a head or two taller than everyone else when we gather for CWG. I can't find better evidence of this than the preview picture on his wife Emily's Facebook. He's so tall that even Facebook cuts off his head. Those who do not follow the law perfectly are cursed. And this burden is heavy enough to crush even the most quote-unquote holy of people. Jesus wanted the lawyer to feel the weight and burden of the commandments he just said and have been reciting twice a day for however many years. The first test comes to an end with a statement that should have shattered any pride the lawyer may have had. Do this and you will live. If you want to inherit eternal life, agape love the Lord and your neighbors and do it perfectly and you will live. Jesus is calling out the lawyer and his false sense of security that he's inherited eternal life. Then we come to the second test in verses 29 to 37. Rather than humbly acknowledging his failure to love and his inability to obey the law perfectly, the lawyer jumps to justifying himself. He may be thinking one of several thoughts. I don't have the first great commandment down, so let's see if I have the second. Or I have the first one down, so let me see if I have the second. Or I'm doing pretty well with all these laws, so let me just confirm my efforts to make sure I'm on the right track. Whatever the reason, the point is that he doesn't get it. And this is clear when he asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? In asking this question, he's trying to lower the standards so that he can defend himself as someone who is in right standing with God. It also reveals that he believes some are not his neighbors, and that some are lesser than he and less deserving of such love. Once again, the lawyer doesn't understand. Then Jesus responds with one of the most well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this parable, we have a Jewish man who is badly beaten, almost to the point of death on the side of the road. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles and considered quite dangerous. The trek would go from 2,600 feet above sea level to 800 feet below sea level. And it was a prime spot for thieves to hide, rob and kill without anyone noticing. But the focus is not on this man, but the three who encounter him. Along come two people who are considered not only to be God's people, but the leaders of God's people. The priest was a servant of God who offered sacrifices for God's people in the temple. And the Levite served as assistant, as an assistant to the priest overseeing the temple services. As people who served the Lord, they were the best representatives of God on earth. They were the very people you'd expect to help a dying man. And what do they do? They cross over to the other side to avoid the dying man. Now some say they did this because they were evil and hypocritical. This is consistent with Jesus' woes toward the religious leaders in the next chapter. Others say they were being faithful to the law and did not want to become unclean by touching a dead body as it says in Numbers 19.11. Jewish commentators say this is unlikely because there was an exception in their tradition 
that allow for caring for neglected, neglected corpses. The reasons are uncertain, but what is certain is that no help was given. There is absolutely no compassion. There is no love. But then comes the Samaritan. It's not even a Jewish layperson, but a Samaritan. And like we learned last week, they were despised by the Jews, and the deep hatred went both ways. They were the offspring of Jews who intermarried with the Gentiles after the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. They were seen as a people polluted with Gentile blood. A Samaritan is the last person you'd expect to help a dying Jewish man. But Jesus says in Luke 10, 33-35, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan goes above and beyond in caring for this man. Unlike the priest and Levite, he had compassion and he showed it. He took care of the wounds and transported him to an inn to care for him. And he didn't just leave him and go, but he stayed the night. The next day, he gave the innkeeper enough money for the man's room and board for one to two months. But on top of that, the Samaritan promised to come back to pay for any additional expenses. This is agape love. The lawyer is concerned about who his neighbor is, whereas Jesus is concerned about what it looks like to be a loving neighbor. The Samaritan's actions are an example of the love that fulfills the law. As one commentator puts it, the lawyer was looking for minimum obedience when Jesus was looking for total obedience. After the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answers correctly once again. Notice though how he can't even get himself to say the Samaritan. He instead says, the one who showed him mercy. And the second test ends similarly to the first test. You go and do likewise. The question that started it all was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? These tests from Jesus should have driven the lawyer to his knees to confess that he doesn't have eternal life and that he's not able to inherit it on his own. After each test, the lawyer should have exclaimed, I cannot do this. Some of you may have noticed that the title of today's sermon is a famous phrase from a commercial several decades ago. It was a catchphrase for a medical alarm and protection company called LifeCall, now used by LifeAlert. This company makes small devices that attach to a necklace, which allow the user to speak directly with an emergency dispatch service when activated. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, falls are the leading cause of fatal and non-fatal injuries for older Americans. An average of 27,000 Americans, 65 years or older, 
die from falling each year. This means there's one death from a fall every 19 minutes. When I was younger, I used to think the commercial was ridiculous. And this sounds horrible, but I would even laugh whenever it came on because the acting was just so bad. But when I think about it now, it would be so sad, it would be so heartbreaking if an elderly loved one like my dad or mom fell with no one to help them. With each test, Jesus was revealing the self-reliant, proud heart of the lawyer. He should have recognized that the inheritance of eternal life could not be earned. But all he saw before his eyes was a teacher to be tested. The lawyer didn't understand who was in front of him and what his purpose was. He didn't see that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish what his father sent him to do. He didn't realize that Jesus was a promised Messiah who came to establish the eternal kingdom. He didn't believe that the very person in front of him was the one who came so that sinners would have life and have abundantly. And in a matter of weeks, the Son of God would show the greatest act of agape love. He would display this love by laying down his life on the cross for sinners. In his death and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled the law through his love and perfect obedience. He would take on the curse of the law that we deserve, like it says in Galatians 3:13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The inheritance of eternal life that the lawyer believed he had could only be received through faith in Jesus. For those of you who do not trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're in a much more grave situation than an elderly person who has fallen with no one to help them. You are spiritually fallen, and there is nothing that you can do to get back up. You are dead in your sin, and you remain under God's wrath. And there is nothing that you can do to inherit eternal life. Like this lawyer, you may be testing Jesus to see if he's really who he says he is, or you may be justifying over and over again why you don't need Jesus. My only application for you is this. Look to Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in the Son of God. The inheritance of eternal life can only be found in Him. For you, Christian brother or sister, would this passage remind you that you were fallen, that you were dead in your sin, and there's absolutely nothing you could do or could have done to get back up? The inheritance of eternal life was given to you by grace through the one who fulfilled the law perfectly and the one who took on the curse of the law in our place. The lawyer's question should cause us to think about eternal life. It's so easy in the business of our lives to be caught up in the present. But I ask, how often do you think about eternal life? My encouragement to you is this. Think more about the eternal life we have in Christ. Think and live for the eternal kingdom now. Colossians 3, 1-4 calls us to seek and set our minds on the things above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the things of this earth. Let me say that one more time. Seek and set your minds on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the things of this earth. And when you do, I encourage you to think of eternal life not only in terms of quantity, but also in quality. What I mean is this. We often think about the length of time regarding eternal life. We think of eternal life as life forever with God after death. And there's nothing wrong with this because it is absolutely true. But there's also the quality of eternal life that is often overlooked. Imagine eternal life when you've worked so hard for it. You'll spend all of eternity believing, I deserve this. And you might even think of it as an eternal retirement well-deserved because of all the good works you've done while on earth. But imagine an eternal life given by grace. You'd spend your life now in gratitude, in great expectation for what's to come. And you'd spend all of eternity in gratitude, knowing that you don't belong there. And this is the case for every believer. And this is one of the reasons why Christians are called to be a people of thanksgiving. Listen to Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. There is not an ounce of, hey, Lord, I deserve to be here in any of these verses. Life in Christ now and life with God for all of eternity is so much sweeter when you believe you don't deserve it. Christ has accomplished this work and his spirit has sealed this in eternal inheritance to be ours. As people Saved by the blood of the Lamb, we are graciously given new life in the present that extends into all of eternity. This certainty of eternal life in Christ gives us hope for every day here on earth now. And this certainty should soften our hardened hearts and cause us to love the Lord and our neighbors with an agape love. To close, I would like to read Titus 3, 4-8. As Paul encourages Titus to insist on these truths, I insist on these truths to you, Maranatha. They're much more than words on a screen. They are truths spoken by the living God to us for our good. So after I read it, I encourage you to pause the clip and read through it, pray through it on your own, with your family, with your friends, and reflect on this passage. Titus 3 4 to 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen.